Welcome back to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald, editor-at-large at EdSource, sitting in for Louis Friedberg, who's away this week in Alaska. And we'll be back next week unless we need to send out a search party. I'm pleased to have with us our producer, Sarah Tan, on the other side of the mic to share the conversation today. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, John. So what's the talk about? Uh, Well, this week we'll be talking about a new charter school poll released by the magazine Education Next, vouchers and school choice under Trump, and a visit we took to Berkeley for an oral history project with high schoolers. Uh, First, though, John, you wrote an article today about a poll released on Monday that reveals maybe some surprising news, uh, that the public's support of charter schools is waning. Can you tell us a little more? Well, Education Next is a magazine, and it has published 11 annual polls. It's published by the uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford, and its key editors are two Harvard professors, Paul Peterson and Martin West, obviously well-respected. And one of the measures that did it was charters, how, how much support do charter schools have? And what it saw was a really interesting drop of 12 percentage points from 51% to 39%. And that's still above the 36% that are opposed to charters, but it's a big drop. And it was equally big among both Republicans and Democrats, which is truly interesting and a bit puzzling. Okay, yeah. Can you kind of go back and explain a little bit how did charter support fall along party lines in the past? There's been a wing of the Democratic Party that has supported charters. President Obama, his Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, a number of wealthy Democrats who are funders of charter schools, getting them off the ground. Republicans have been much more traditionally supportive of of charter schools. But over the past year, Bernie Sanders, a progressive Democrat, and Elizabeth Warren, another senator from Massachusetts, have been very outspoken against charter schools. And the California Teachers Association created a website calling for a lot of change and more restrictions of charters. There's been some big publicities about some charter schools that have had some financial uh, financial problems. And so a lot of this has created a buzz in the background that I think accounts for a lot of the drop in the support, but still a bit puzzling for Republicans because after all, President Trump supports charters and so does uh, Betsy DeVos, his Secretary of Education. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how much of an impact do you think Trump and his kind of divisive politics have had in this waning support from Republicans? Well, you know, divisive is it because the uh, poll, it it was interesting, Education Next would ask uh, some respondents, there are 4,000 respondents, what do you think of charter schools? What do you think of vouchers and other things? And then they'd ask half of the respondents, This is President Trump's position on these education, merit pay for teachers and vouchers and charters. What do you think? And so those who were told the position of President Trump, it was very polarizing with more Democrats than taking the stand opposite the president, opposing merit pay, opposing vouchers and Republicans by the same percentage point, increasing their support and agreeing with the president. Interestingly enough, because this isn't the first time that Education Next asked this question, back in 2008, after President Obama was elected, they did the same thing. They'd pull half the respondents, and the other half, they'd say, well, this is President Obama's position. In that case, President Obama was very persuasive. He brought Democrats and Republicans closer to his position in a way that hasn't happened in the first year of the Trump administration. Interesting. And yeah, what do you think the ramifications of this poll are going to be? How are we going to see these kind of new opinions play out? 
Well, that's, that's, I think uh, it's hard to know whether it's a one-year bump. It's hard to know. I think it's significant. There's been a sort of erosion for charters. But the president is pushing a different agenda, really. He's pushing uh, tax credits for private school and, and vouchers. And so uh, it, it will be interesting. In California, again, California, about 10% of the respondents were from California. And they didn't do a state breakdown. But I have a suspicion that California may be a little bit different from the nation, at least traditionally it's been. And the California Charter Schools Association has done its own polling, which shows more support than revealed in this national poll. So it's hard to know. But certainly California is one of the battlegrounds for charter schools. And uh, is there anything else interesting that stood out to you in this poll? Well, it's a really interesting poll, and I would encourage uh, listeners to go to our website and and get the link and read the full story that I wrote. But Common Core jumped out because, as we know, Common Core has this Common Core standards were adopted in 2010. And since then, particularly in Republican-led states, a lot of opposition to it, and it's fallen significantly in the polls. There again, in this case... Education Next asks a segment of the voters, not just what do you think of Common Core, but what do you think of the idea of having common standards, academic standards in every state, which of course is one of the key elements of Common Core. When asked that question and not associated with Common Core as a brand name, the support among Republicans doubled from like 32% to 60%. All of a sudden, Democrats and Republicans are equally in supportive of these so-called national standards, which is to say, common core. <laughs> Interesting. It's just a kind of a branding conundrum at this point. Well, I think it shows that it's more complex. And in fact, you know, the nation believes there should be standards similar among the states. Well, in fact, that was the whole organizing principle of common core. Got it. Speaking of school choice, uh, John, you spoke with Jonathan Kaplan, senior public policy analyst for the California Budget and Policy Center. Uh, can you tell us a little more about what he had to say? Yeah, Jonathan has written some really readable explainers about the potential impact in schools and, and school district finance of tax credits for private schools and tax-funded school vouchers, and, and in fact, what the legislature might do in anticipation that the Congress might adopt them at a federal level. So I spoke with him about how this might affect low and middle income public school students and also how it might affect the state. He stopped by recently to Ed Source and we talk. So, so here's our conversation. California policymakers cannot prevent the federal government from enacting a voucher-like program. Um, those voucher-like programs include things like education savings accounts, tuition tax credits, uh, which are sometimes called neo-vouchers. And neo-vouchers work through a, basically through a tax scheme. It's, it's, it's a, they're far less transparent than traditional school vouchers, but their effects are ultimately the same. Under neo-vouchers, the federal government would allow taxpayers to either claim a tax deduction for tuition to private schools or a tax credit through a much more complicated process. And the tax credit process works like this. Taxes owed to the federal government um, would instead be donated to a private not voucher nonprofit. And that donation would not necessarily come from a parent, uh, wouldn't come from somebody who's sending a kid to a private school. Rather, it could come from any taxpayer that has tax liability, from a company, from an individual. And then that donation goes to the voucher nonprofit, and the nonprofit 
takes that money and packages it into a voucher that then is provided to a parent to send their child to a private school. The federal government under this scheme foregoes tax revenue. It loses the dollars that they would otherwise receive because they're providing these tax credits. And the effect of the neo-voucher tax scheme is in essence the same as a traditional school voucher. Neo-vouchers divert public dollars from public schools because if students leave public schools, if a student leaves a California public school, the dollars generated by that student leaves with the, with, with the student. So the public school no longer has the dollar that was generated by that student and fewer resources then will be at that public school, which is gonna have a tough time meeting its costs, many of which are fixed costs, for example, transportation costs, maintenance of facilities, and even some salaries and benefits. So while it's very different than a traditional voucher, neo-vouchers really have the same ultimate effect as a voucher. So in all likelihood, though, the federal funding wouldn't fund the entire cost of tuition, right? Which would be like $13,000 in California. It would be substantially less, which therefore you could argue perhaps that the impact on schools would be less, or would it? Well, it depends on how many students would actually take this voucher if, if in fact, they, if they received one. Um, and you're absolutely right, though, that when we see in states that have, have employed this practice, the voucher that is provided to parents often does not pay for the full tuition at a private school. So it depends on how much take up there would be with regard to such a program. But you're pointing out an important issue and question, which is who would this voucher potentially benefit? And, and, and in fact, actually, you know, voucher proponents uh, tend to say that this is something that provides choice to, to parents, but if it doesn't pay for the full tuition at a private school, the question would be, who is this voucher subsidizing? Is it voucher subsidizing a parent that would already have sent their child to a private school or only parents that can afford to make up the difference between the cost of a private school and what the voucher would provide? So I guess it works both ways. Uh, if it's only partial, then perhaps only wealthy parents on the one hand would be going and taking advantage of it. If you structure it so that only low-income kids, then perhaps a lot of private schools wouldn't even offer this opportunity? Well, it's unclear as to whether or not, uh, so the, the reality of whether a private school would accept students mm. or not is, is another issue and question, right? right? Um, but whether parents would have, you've described a means test by which this voucher would be awarded to a, a parent, um, that in fact could be a way that it's structured. Uh, but then the question becomes, how much money is actually being allocated to this voucher system? And then also, uh, it does still call into question what would happen to the students that remain in public schools. So private schools are not required at this point to accept all applicants to their system. Um, and in fact, actually, one of the key populations that isn't talked about much here is the special ed population, which the, the question of the cost associated to educating special education students is definitely an issue and concern, not just for public schools, but for private schools as well. So you address some, some of what you're talking about in your papers when you talk about the actions that the legislature could do, both in anticipation that this might be happening, or in fact, once it's enacted, to to you know, mitigate the impact on finances and perhaps extend regulations to the schools that, that accept these vouchers or tax credits. Explain a little bit what these options might be, Jonathan. Yeah, so the California state legislature does have options for mitigating the impact of federal imposition of backdoor vouchers. For example, they could uh, use hold harmless provisions that exist currently um, that prevent reductions in funding for school districts 
when there's declines in enrollment. So if there were to be a number of students, depending on how the legislation were crafted, uh, were leaving a school district where traditionally that may actually cause a reduction in funding over a course of time, the legislature could put into place hold harmless provisions that would prevent the similar reductions from happening for public school districts. The other possibility that the legislature could take is that they could regulate private schools. Currently, uh, private schools in California are not um, licensed, regulated, or monitored by the state of California. So the possibility is that the legislature could look at this and say, hey, if there, you know, there's public dollars, whether they're state dollars or federal dollars going to private schools, we want more regulatory authority over private schools. So they could tell private schools to receive official accreditation from the state. Uh, this accreditation, for example, could prohibit rejecting students except for certain reasons. Um, they could require private schools uh, to publish student discipline policies or to have minimum annual requirements for uh, the numbers of days or hours that are provided to students over the course of time. Um, they could regulate private schools by requiring their teachers to receive background checks and accreditation or uh, to develop academic accountability measures and the like. So there's a lot of choices the legislature could could entertain in terms of regulating private schools. Yeah, so you think they could do this even though state funding isn't involved, even though this is just federal funding? Sure. I mean, the legislature could, if it wished to, act to uh, to in order to license or regulate an entity in the state. If they wished mm -hmm. to go that route, they they could. Clearly, that would be a, a big departure in the way that we currently operate uh, in the state of California. So I hear some choice proponents in my head saying, well, what Jonathan is really saying is is not to protect the children or the parents who want to use choice, but it's really just to hassle private schools to discourage them from getting into or even opening themselves up for these tax credits. So where do you strike the balance in terms of what's good for district schools, what's good for public education, and, and, and giving parents choice that they feel is important for their children? Well, you know, a central issue here really is whether any voucher program um, would really give parents alternatives. The question is, you know, in some sense, we have here potentially a false promise. The question being, are we actually providing choice? Are we providing enough to actually allow, for example, a low-income parent to be able to send their child to a private school if, in fact, this neo-voucher system were to be put into place? And it's a big open question. So we, we still need to really consider what this policy would look like in practical terms for those that it supposedly or purportedly intended to help. And vouchers, in fact, may only benefit certain parts of the population or in certain areas. And for example, there's a big question about what would this would look like in rural areas of the state? How would the state deal with uh, departures of students in places where you have very significant impacts if you have declining enrollment in certain areas of the state? So the, the question really comes down to whether, in fact, we are providing a choice to parents when, in fact, we're talking about one of these programs or not. And if, if there's a question associated with that and the legislature is looking at it and, and judging uh, whether, in fact, that's the case, they have options in front of them that they can consider in terms of trying to address a policy that basically would be, be implemented above their heads. I mean, the premise at the outset of here is, is that it is unlikely that the state of California would put into place one of these programs. Uh, the question would be, how would the state react if the federal government were the ones who are trying to implement this over and above the interests of the state legislature or the governor? 
So nothing has been proposed yet. We're not quite sure whether it will be in the next budget or not. Uh, I think the president may have some other distractions and other things he's paying attention to. Nonetheless, um, I'm assuming that you produce the papers because you think it's time to start thinking about it now. Clearly, the issues going on in the federal government and legislature are, are somewhat uncertain at this point. But there is no question that with discussion, for example, of tax reform proposals and the like in the federal legislature, this is certainly an option for federal policymakers. And we don't know what the federal government would do. And it's important for state policymakers to be aware that this is uh, a possibility and to let them know that there are options in front of them in order to address this if, in fact, it were to come to pass. So all of your papers are very readable and, and relatively short. So if, if our listeners want to find out more, where do they go, Jonathan? <laughs> So our website is calbudgetcenter.org. Um, we're the California Budget and Policy Center, but that Cal Budget Center is for short. Um, and yeah, we, uh, we encourage people to check out our website. We uh, write on a bunch of policy issues, including education, and, and certainly encourage people to check us out. Good. Well, thanks for coming in. Appreciate the opportunity. So that was Jonathan Kaplan, Senior Policy Analyst for the California Budget and Policy Center. So Sarah, let's take a really quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a really interesting story to tell. So changing gears, a couple weeks ago, Sarah and I went up to UC Berkeley and we caught the tail end of Making History. It's a four-week exploration of 20th century American history for high school juniors from throughout the Bay. It's really a, a potential prototype and experiential learning that's been developed by UC Berkeley History Social Science Project, which is part of the UC system for developing curriculums in various subjects. This particular program was funded by the Stewart Foundation. And, you know, the goal is to produce new eyes for students in the way they see the communities they live in and to use documents and tours of museums, oral histories, sort of like treasure hunting of getting to know your own surroundings to discover, you know, what are the interesting aspects about the area in which I live that helps me understand what my community is and how we got where we are. Very cool. So there were 85 applicants for this program, and they selected uh, 30. And the students really had fun. They searched old photo albums in their attics for objects and family heirlooms that uh, explain their family's immigration. They tracked down New Deal neighborhood centers that provided jobs and hope in the Depression. And they explored maps that explain discriminatory mortgage practices that sort of define their own neighborhoods. And they listened to Betty Reed Soskin, a dose on it, Rosie the Riveter Museum in uh, Richmond. She's 95 and still very clear as a bell and strong and talked about heroism and racism during the war. So he did all this. And Sarah, you and I caught the tail end on the uh, day when they had activists from the 1960s come up and the students interviewed them. Yeah, it was actually really cool and a whole lot of fun. Um, the students seemed really engaged. Um, they were broken down into groups of about five and each one got to interview 
a particular figurehead in the 19 from the 1960s and i think the students really had a great time learning and getting to make that connection between the 1960s and how that knowledge that these people may have gained from protesting in the 1960s could be applied to today's political climate. Yeah, you know, many of these people that they interviewed, and of course, being Berkeley, it wasn't very hard to find activists from the 60s. And I think what intrigued them was they weren't that much older than they are now. And they sort of talked about their moment of transformation when they became activists and and what motivated them, how they gained confidence and and how they decided to become engaged in either at that time with the war in Vietnam or or going to Mississippi for freedom summer to integrate schools and to exchange the right to vote, which were denied to, to black people in the South. Or uh, the free speech movement at Berkeley. All these were, were motivating events in these people's lives that really changed their lives. And some of the people who were there are interesting. There was Saturu Ned, who's an early Black Panther leader in Oakland and a member of the Panther funk band called the Lumpen. And there was Marion Kwan, who grew up in Chinatown in San Francisco, who went to Mississippi with 700 volunteers. And there was Adriana Run, she's she was a an insecure girl from St. Louis, as she describes it, who whose parents wouldn't pay for her college, so she went to Berkeley on her own, and heard Mario Savio, the founder of the free speech movement, and and then there was Gary Hart, a retired Democratic state senator from Santa Barbara and former Secretary of Education in California, and I believe that that you caught a little bit of that conversation, did you? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, with all these like titles, it kind of sounds like these people are almost like unreachable or something. But I feel like what really drew the kids in, like you said, was just that they, when they relayed these kind of experiences, they sounded and felt so much like these kids do today, perhaps, in today's political climate. So yeah, I caught the tail end of Gary Hart speaking with a an Oakland high school student. Um, and here's what he had to say. Do you see um, any parallels as um, the presidency uh, of Trump that we have today to any of uh, unpopularities or anything we have with we have had with Nixon? Well, Trump is so unique and so bizarre. I mean, Nixon was awful, but he was a kind of a traditional politician. I mean, Trump is in another world almost, so it's hard. Um, I mean. I do feel like I worked hard to get someone other than Nixon elected president, and I and a lot of other people didn't succeed, and I worked hard to try to get Hillary Clinton elected president, and we didn't succeed on that. So, I mean, that's a parallel. Um, and it's easy after you have a horrible defeat like that to just say, the system's corrupt, I'm not going to waste my time on this anymore, and I can understand how some people would say that, but um, I think that just plays into Nixon and Trump's hand. If people give up, then Trump gets a blank check to do whatever he wants, and so I hope that not many people take that lesson out of his uh, victory. Yeah, that was Gary Hart. You know, the interesting thing, sir, about Gary is that Gary came from a Republican family in San Diego, and he got a football scholarship to Stanford. And yet what turned him around was the Vietnam War and his deciding to uh, to protest against it. And from there, he went to, to uh, support Eugene McCarthy's campaign in 68, and, and that led him to electoral politics, and he was one of the most distinguished senators in California for, you know, the, of the past decades. You also listened to uh, 
Saturu Ned, did you not? Yeah, um, kids were also really excited uh, to hear from Saturu Ned, formerly James Mott, who's one of the founding Black Panthers members in Sacramento. And so they kind of got to ask him questions about how he came to found a chapter of that revolutionary organization and kind of the lessons that he took from that. So here's what he had to say. The other thing I encourage you guys to is look at your rights, your amendment rights in the Constitution, like your right to a fair trial, like uh, the right to the Miranda Act, your right to defend your family. So all these rights are there. And if people look at these rights and anything that we do, then you're saying I'm standing on the Constitution. The full phraseology that we used to say was of the people, for the people, by the people, power to the people, of the people, for the people, by the people, power to the people. That was the chant. It was from the Constitution. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the 10 point platform program talks about that, you know, uh, our inalienable rights. We actually went to the United Nations. You know, and put yeah. a forum to them in 1968. So, being aware of these things, you never ever allow them to take away what is constitutionally right. That was Saturu Ned, uh, one of the founding members of the Sacramento Black Panthers. And events like this one kind of remind students that. You know, they have their own generation's call to get involved, thinking about the Charlottesville incident this weekend in particular, you know, I think students probably felt they had a good amount to take from these 60s activists. Maybe it surprised them. A little more relevant than they thought, perhaps, going into the program. But, you know, you know, Sarah, this is the Bay Area. Bay Area is very distinct in its activism. And the point of making history is to create uh, an ability for students in various communities to discover history in their own backyard. And so Long Beach and Fresno and San Diego and L.A. Are, are very different. They have their own historical roots, their own things to discover. And that's what making history is. We'll be trying to do. And I thought they were very successful. At least I really enjoyed the day I spent in Berkeley uh, on this program. Yeah, same here. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for bringing me. So that about wraps it up for this week in California education. Sarah, I've enjoyed having you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. Um, Yeah, just before we leave, uh, if you like what you hear, please help others find us by leaving us a review on iTunes. And also there are tickets now available for EdSource's upcoming symposium on October 5th in Oakland, Education for All, Serving California's Vulnerable Children. And we'd love to see you there if you're nearby. Anyways, thanks so much for listening. I am Sarah Tan. I'm John Fensterwald, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.